I have discovered that there is a potential pitfall in experiencing success. This is TRBM, a podcast for authors who are serious about earning a full-time living selling books to readers. I'm the host, Jody J. Sperling, and each episode, I'll share with you practical tips on marketing and selling your books. And I won't hold anything back. Sometimes I fail. Every time I do, you'll know it. Sometimes I succeed. And when I do, I'll give you my step-by-step replay so you can succeed too. Thanks for listening. Minor successes versus major successes and challenge you to evaluate the things that you're doing right now with your writing, with your marketing of your writing, uh, maybe even with your writing. So this, this may be taken all the way back. I don't often talk about the craft of writing, but at the most basic level, the craft of writing informs the effectiveness of the marketing that you do. So if you write a book and you are in a huge rush to get it published and out there into the world, maybe you shortcut the cover art, maybe you shortcut the editing, maybe you shortcut the beta readers, maybe you shortcut the number of drafts that you put together to get that book out there. Look, I understand rapid release and Amazon is supposed to be some sort of magical thing that works for everybody. The problem with it is you're not going to get long-term avid readers if your book isn't an A+. Uh, I know that there are people out there who feel pretty satisfied with a B, uh, and I also have had a really great conversation with uh, a friend of mine recently about the idea that we begin to settle for less. In the advent of YouTube, we now will watch content visually uh, that is produced at a much lower quality rate. And you could say that's because we always wanted that. And so now somebody has just tapped into the reality that you don't need Hollywood studio level production to make something that we watch enjoyable. And I think to a degree that's true. Things like The Office came along first in England and then over here in the United States. And that was fairly low quality. It was like that documentary style filming. We've always liked documentary. Uh, so there are ways in which maybe like the highest level of filming something is not necessary. I think there are also ways like, uh, I believe his name is, um, J.A. Conrath. Maybe I'm getting the, the, the letters wrong here, but anyways, Mr. Conrath, the author is the one I've referenced several times in this podcast. I also forget his name all the time. I'm not sure why I haven't read his books. I will be upfront about that and say, I've not read his books. I've read his whole blog. I love his blog. I should read his books based on his philosophy, but honestly, I turned away from him because he said he satisfied publishing a B plus. He said, you know, there's a point where you get diminishing returns. And I think that's kind of true. But I'd also like to throw in there the idea of Alex Hormozzi. I've mentioned him a lot recently. Um, I'm not listening to him as much or reading his books as much as I was for a while. I was literally just rereading and re-listening to a lot of his content to get it really ingrained in my brain. I've moved away. I'm looking for the next like big thing. I seem to be a consumer of universes or worlds. Like I really binge on it until I feel like I've grasped the basic process. And then I move along. I like to have uh, a vast array of experiences from different different people who are on the path to get their stuff known. At any rate, Hermosi says that there is a massive difference in grading up, basically. So I'm trying to put it in my own words, phrase it in a way that is really applicable to this writing journey. But the idea is uh, that 
anybody, and this is this right here is common knowledge, but Hermosi talks about this scale that we're going to go on. So the first bit is anybody can spend just 20 minutes a day doing something. And within a year, they will be considered expert level in that field. So if you spend 20 minutes a day practicing Spanish, then you're going to be like expert level. Um, if you spend 20 minutes a day, uh, and this is after a year, 20 minutes a day writing, you're going to get to expert level writing. You're going to be uh, better than 90% of everybody in the world at that thing. So Practice something 20 minutes a day for one year, and you will be better than 90% of the world. That is considered expert level. Now think about how you are if you have been practicing Spanish for a year, like me. I can't even speak fluently. I'm just better than 90% of everybody else who's doing it because they haven't put the time in, and I have. I have a longer than a year streak. I have an average of about 20 minutes a day spread throughout the day. Um, and yeah, I, I I know more Spanish words than most people. I'm not going to try to perform like a little monkey for you right now, because every time I think about actually speaking out loud, I get really scared. Spanish speaking people don't. Um, same could be said for a lot of different things. I've been writing for 20 years. When I sit down to draft something, it's fairly straightforward for me. And yet, when I send my drafts to people, I still have typos. I still have uh, grammatical issues. I still have plot holes. I still have all the basic details that anybody doing this craft is always going to have. You're always struggling with perfection. So if your brother or sister or mother or father, if your friend picked up writing today and wrote 20 minutes a day, every day for a year, at the end of the year, they took whatever they had been writing and they handed it over to you. Would you be excited to read it? What is author marketing mastery through optimization, you ask? I'm gonna tell you, it's the best way for us authors to make a living selling our books. Are you tired of hearing gurus tell you your book is only good enough to be a lead magnet for services? Are you tired of feeling like you have to be a slave to social media and then frustrated when the time you spend doesn't actually help you sell books? I was too, until I found Ammo. Ammo is the only program that reliably produces results and it works for anyone. Is it hard work? You bet. Do you have to overcome some of your own prejudices to make Ammo work for you? Absolutely. But rather than being another program that rah-rah shishkoom boss tries to get you emotionally excited only to offer unclear methods, Ammo shows you how to design profitable ads step-by-step step through a unique, highly tested and targeted formula. The founder, Steve Piper, is a data-loving, formula-driven author who escaped the kingdom of Amazon to build a platform for himself, where he sold directly to his readers and built a loyal following and millions of copies sold. With Ammo, you know who's reading your books, how to contact them, and what they want to read next. If you've always been frustrated with Amazon's wall of mystery of not knowing who's reading your books and losing 50 to 70% of your hard-earned money that you're making through sales, Ammo solves all of those problems by putting you in the driver's seat and showing you how to fulfill your books directly to your readership. Click the link in the show notes to learn more. In most cases, your answer is going to be no. And I have met people who do some really strange gymnastics to be like, well, it depends. I'd like meet it with uh, open arms and, and a, an open heart. And maybe it would be the best thing I'd ever read. But you know 
you know at some deep intrinsic level that it's not going to be the best thing that you ever read and it's not going to be amazing. It could be good. It could be great. And okay, in the one in a billion case, it could be the best thing you've ever read. There are going to be extenuating circumstances. But what I'm going to tell you right now, and you know this to be true, is in those extenuating circumstances, there's transferal of skills. Uh, we talked about this actually pretty recently. Pardon for the little chime. I need to pay my mortgage. It's a reminder. Um, yes, I know there's auto pay, but this one particular mortgage has always just been manual and I haven't worried about switching it over. I guess maybe I like the routine of it. Anyway. Transferal of skills, we talked about in a, a previous podcast a couple of weeks ago. It's the idea that if you play guitar, you're going to have proficiency at most other instruments after a period of time. It's because you've been practicing music, so you already understand rhythm, you understand timing, you understand chords, you understand keys, all of that kind of stuff. You don't even have to be a studied musician. You just start to build a familiarity with it. Another area where uh, my wife and I were talking yesterday is my middle son is in basketball. He was in a tournament and we were watching the other team just wallop my son's team. Uh, and, and what I noticed throughout is that the other team, those boys, really had played a lot and played a lot together. And so they had a pretty good sense, especially for their age, third graders, uh, fourth graders, fourth graders. Sorry, middle son, that I don't even know a grade you're in or it took me a second. Anyway, again, I'm getting off track. Uh, watching the other team, they had been together for a while and they understood where each other were on the court to a good level. They understood where the hoop was so that their shots were better. They understood where the ball was going to bounce off the rim so they could be in better position for rebounds. Whereas our boys, this is their first year together. Many of them have not played basketball prior to this. A couple of them have, and you can see that their skills are better. But the biggest thing is my son, like sometimes ends up behind the backboard, still in play, but behind the backboard. And you can't grab a rebound there. He doesn't understand yet that he can't grab a rebound there because his sense of place in this world is not as good, but he could play football. He could play baseball. He could bowl or play pool. And the more he does those things that require you to understand positioning and spatial relationships, the better you're going to be at everything you do. So there is transferal. You can have the uh, the two sport athletes like Deion Sanders, who can play baseball and football, uh, like Bo Jackson, who can play baseball and football. You can have these people who can transfer largely because they are dominant at one thing and they can use those skills in another place. So the example of a person who's never written a book before and then decides that they're going to go on a one-year journey to write 20 minutes a day and pump something out that's actually amazing. That's going to be the case there. And it does happen. It just doesn't happen very often. And you should expect you're not going to be that person. You should expect that you're not going to be the person who dominates a field coming right in. And if you have those expectations, you should further expect that this is probably one of the few times you listen to this podcast because you don't have the staying power to really work through the tough things and get to the next level. All the way back to Alex Hermosi now. So Alex says that there are most people who have just enough persistence to get to that expert level, better than 90% of the population. Um, and then they think, then they believe that they should be able to put stuff out in the world and people should love it because it's better than 90% of everybody. He also says, and these two things go together so closely that they can hardly be separated, that the increase in talent and skill from 90 to 95, from 95 to 97, from 97 to 99 to end of one. You are oh, another reminder. Sorry about this. Anyways, <laughs> uh, you are at that point, the best of the best. What it takes to move each percentage from 90 on up 
is years and years of deliberate, intentional practice. It took me five years to write The Nine Lives of Marvin Delonghi. If you've listened to this podcast for a while, you're aware of that. I've stated it many, many times. I'm proud of that book. I still, to this day, have a deeper connection with that book than any book that I've written. I also took five years to write The Stories of Bogey. Um, that The Stories of Bogey was not my first completed book, but it was the first book that I wrestled into shape and really built something great with. I had written some other books and not worked as hard with them as I did that. Um, but then in The Nine Lives of Marvin Alonghi, I took on all of the challenges at once. I said, I want to write a book that is commercially viable, that people would want to read for entertainment value. So Stories of Bogey, I didn't really care about the entertainment value. And that may sound crazy to you, but when you're talking about literary fiction, a lot of times in literary fiction, like the Stories of Bogey, you're, you're trying to impart life lessons, epiphanies. James Joyce uh, wrote this story called Araby that everybody loves. He wrote a story called The Dead. And the end of both of those stories, there's this epiphany that if you read it and love it and connect with it, it literally could change your life. Many people will cite The Dead or Araby as being a story that changed their life. That's a pretty high calling. You're not worried at that point about entertainment. You're worried about philosophy, kind of. Um, and so I was worried more about philosophy when I wrote the stories of Bogey. Uh, and, and that makes sense because it's a story of grief and loss and um, ultimately me dealing with A, being a father who has this really deep desire and husband has this deep desire to wonder. I have wanderlust. I like to travel. Um, and also uh, of, of a man who lost a daughter and feels like I'm actually guilty of of being the reason that I lost her. Um, you can read the book if you want to, but that is why I wrote that book is I feel like it was my fault that she died. Like my moral shortcomings caused her to die. Um, so yeah, you can, you can learn more about that in the book if you're interested. But ultimately, uh, it took me a long time to put that book together. When I tackled The Nine Lives of Marva DeLonghi, all of those things, there is a philosophical message message at its core. Uh, I was new to things like feminism. Um, I was aware of it, but it was a new concept for me that uh, women were not treated equally. I know that might sound crazy to you, but at the time that I started writing it, I, I was not open to that idea in any real meaningful way. I always just felt like, hey, you know what, work as hard as you can and everybody has a fair opportunity. I've come to realize that that's not entirely true. Um, and so I wrote this book to try to, to talk to myself about feminism. I wanted to learn more from the perspective of a woman on what it was like to be unfairly treated. Uh, I wanted to know what would happen if you loved somebody so much that you were willing to lay down your life for them. Um, and so those two things are philosophically woven into the fabric of the story. And it is me wrestling with those two concepts over all the other concepts out there. I wanted to know them better through experiencing them narratively. Um, but furthermore, I wanted that entertainment value. So everything that existed with Bogey existed with The Nine Lives of Marva DeLonghi. Plus, I wanted people to, to love it and to be able to read it without having to engage with the philosophical or moral concepts, but to just be like, I have to know who did it and how and why. Uh, and I feel like it's a success. I love the book. Sometimes I'm scared to sell it because it is so heavily packed down with uh, character type stuff. And yet, well, anyways, let's not get off on, on tangents. There are some people who consider the characters to, to really be um, like caricature stereotypes, archetypes. Um, I, I still don't feel like I think this, the, the nine lives of Marvel DeLonghi has a lot of character development. It's fairly subtle. Anyways, I'm defending my own damn book. 
The point I'm trying to make here is that I did more work on that book than I did on The Eight Ball Magic of Susie Q, 24-7 of a Russian named Ruskov, or that I will on The Six Sorrows of Shohai Matsui. Um, they're different things. The series holds together. But when I look at it, uh, all of the effort that I put in The Nine Lives of Marvin Longhai for one transfers into The Eight Ball Magic of Susie Q. There's also the truth that some stories come to you better. All of the work that I did on, on my first books came with me to the eight ball magic of Susie Q. So it does become easier to write a book. Um, but there is no moral, there is no philosophical depth to the eight ball magic that there is to the nine lives. Like it or not, that's just the truth. There is no moral or philosophical depth to that book or to the 24-7. And so it takes a lot less time to write it because you're not wrestling with a specific point. You're wrestling with a plot. You're wrestling with a fun story. You're like, hey, this is great. And consequently, I will tell you that more people give me positive feedback naturally about the eight ball magic of Susie Q. There's less there to chew on. And so it's just a story, a straightforward, let's have a fun time. Um, I aspire one day to be Stephen King. If you read Stephen King very closely, the reason that he is so, so good is that he is able to, to wrestle and deal with moral and philosophical issues at the deepest level and yet still write a story that is absolutely unbelievably good. His his stories are so entertaining that you can read them just on the surface. I'm reading Christine right now and, and adoring the book. Um, it is so intense and so dark and sometimes funny and, and surprising. How can you have a car be the bad guy? Read the book and find out. It's great. Stephen King is very likely, if not the best living writer in the top five, best living writers in the world. He writes all the time. His books go through numerous mini edits. Say what you want, feel how you will. He has a close circle of people that he edits with, and he's got his editors uh, in, in publishing in that world as well. They go through a ton of polish back to Alex Hermosi. He has taken a book that's just by nature and virtue of who he is already in the top 95%, and he said, I'm not ready to publish this until it's better. And so he goes through the draft again. He cuts, he revises, he swaps scenes, he distills every scene to the most important part. And some people say Stephen King uh, has, has uh, logarithmia. I think that's the word. Pulling out a fancy $5 word, and I don't even know if it's the right one. But anyway, some people say that Stephen King uh, is, is too expansive, that his books are too long, that they would be better if he cut out 50,000 words. And to those people, I say, how many of his books have you actually read? Which words would you get rid of? It's a lot harder to be specific in criticism. So I would dare you to say like, oh, this whole scene is completely unnecessary. Um, and then justify why it's unnecessary because in most cases I'm gonna say, no, I, I felt like it was really necessary. And this is not an issue of taste uh, as much as is an issue of preference, I think. Uh, the book that you see is the book that you get. And when you know that somebody has worked incredibly hard at it, perhaps at least understanding where they're coming from uh, is, is a good idea. You'd like to think I've gotten better at podcasting over the years. Sometimes I wonder. I really I really wander around. I really sometimes I'm not quite aimless, but it feels like I'm just on the cusp of aimless. I'm definitely not there right now, but I'm also having a harder time articulating. And that's because I'm I'm wrestling myself with this whole topic. So at the the top of the episode, I had mentioned success sort of stealing from us deeper success. And that's what all of this has been building toward. <laughs> You write The Nine Lives of Marvin Longhai, 
uh, you you labor over it for five years to get it written, and then another two years before you give up trying to publish it traditionally. Um, leave an offer on the table, self-publish it, go that route. It was the right choice. If I continue to work hard to market these books and I want the chance to publish traditionally, I will get that opportunity. Uh, the books sell well. Um, people get excited about them when I talk about the plot points. But there is a way in which you can settle for self-publishing as, as being like instant gratification and then never going the, the, the distance you need to to get that book really out into the world. I'm four books into a nine book series and every single day lately, I find myself thinking, boy, it would be great if I had some central location for all of my notes, all of my plot points, character names, family lineages, you name it. I wish it was in one place because let's be honest, the way that I am using Microsoft Word as a word processor and have 55 different documents to keep track of all of the series details that I need to access, I'm taking more time opening up files wondering, why did I name this one that? Why did I name this one that? And not getting the information I need. Enter Scrivener. You guys know that I do not advertise for things unless A, I'm using them myself, and B, I think that you could up your game, sell more books, do better marketing, and get yourself in the game better. And that is why I am now partnered with Scrivener. If you use the link in the show notes, you get a 30-day free trial, and then you can sign up as well for a discount. Click the link in the show notes to learn more. Uh, and a cascade of justifications that you can make to say why you did what you did. Sometimes I get close to that place, to be honest. Sometimes I get close to the place of saying like, you know, traditional publishing has, has lost its way. They don't take any risks. They're not daring or bold enough. And that's why you have to self-publish to get the really daring, bold, cool stuff out. Um, and yet my reading is represented by 90 plus percent traditional published books. I like traditionally published books. Um, and that may be because I don't know how to navigate self-published world. Uh, it may be because of lifelong biases I've had against self-published, even though I'm a self-published author. It can be true that self-publishing is an easy way to get in the game quickly. And I think that 90% of people use it that way because 90% of people think that after they've spent some time, uh, maybe taking a couple courses, maybe a couple classes, haven't really wrestled with the whole of writing, that uh, maybe they publish something that's you know, better than 90% of everybody else could write, but not good enough for for a stranger to spend their their hard-earned time. Because time's the one thing we can't get back. If I read your book, I'm giving you my time and I'm never going to get that time back. So if I put uh, clowns in a cornfield in my brain, and I did, unfortunately, this is a choice I'm walking back now because I'm not going to finish reading books anymore that are shitty, like clowns in a cornfield. What a total mess. If you know that author, please tell him that he uh, should be ashamed of himself. And also thank him from me because I, I had fallen into this trap of not giving books uh, anything lower than a, a four-star rating because I thought, man, if you just if you work hard enough to write a book, then you should definitely uh, you know deserve at least a four-star rating because it is hard to write a book. Well, right, it's right, it's it's super hard to write a book. But do you want somebody doing uh, heart surgery on you uh, who 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 just like got through a couple videos on YouTube because it's super hard to watch those videos? No. It is. Do you want, and let, let's be serious about this. Do you want a heart surgeon to do heart surgery on you who went through medical school 
but barely passed. They did, they did pass. They did the whole eight years. They did the residency. They barely passed, though. I mean, like, there, there were conversations in the back room of, like, I don't know, Buck. Maybe maybe we call him back. Maybe we tell him he's not cut out for it. And they're like, well, you know, I mean, he did get better. He could keep getting better, maybe, you know. And they pass him. Do you want that guy doing heart surgery on you? It's super hard. I don't want to read a book just because somebody finished it. That's a fucking horrible reason to read a book. That's, a, that's the worst reason ever. So I read Clowns in a Cornfield and I thought, I don't know what's in that person's brain, but that is a brain that I don't ever want to experience ever again. And it deserves one star because there have to be a lot of people out there who are like me, who would just be deeply offended by wasting their time. And probably people who are a lot smarter than me who would just quit. I used to not quit books. There's a whole philosophy behind that. Maybe I'll do a, a podcast on it sometime because I think that there's value in not quitting books. Uh, I, I didn't quit books for the longest time because I was not reading solely for entertainment. And because I was not reading solely for entertainment, there were things I read that were challenging. And a challenging book ends up being a really important and powerful book. Uh, there's a book called Already Dead by one of my favorite authors, Dennis Johnson. That book is challenging. It is really difficult. It's long. It's heavy. The plot is just barely there, um, but the characters are absolutely compelling. There's another book called Infinite Jest. Uh, I personally found it deeply entertaining. Uh, it was easier for me than it is for many people, but still challenging. One of the biggest challenges of Infinite Jest is that the author, David Foster Wallace, uses footnotes throughout. And there are integral plot points in the footnotes. So you have to flip to the back of the book, read the footnote, then return to your point in the book and read. And I'm talking, there are like a hundred pages, 200 pages of eight point font footnotes in Infinite Jest for a book that's already 950 pages long. So you're all said and done. It's like 1150 page book. So many words, so many different stories going on. It is a deeply challenging book. I found it incredibly entertaining as well, but it's challenging. I like to read those things. I'm going to work through that because I believe at the end, that philosophical moral lesson that you learn from a challenging book is something that is going to improve you as a person. It's why I'm devoted to fiction. I believe, I believe that fiction improves a person, makes them a better business person, makes them a better father, makes them a better husband, makes them a better friend, brother, sister, all of the things a better human being with less time consuming than nonfiction. I know that there are a ton of people out there. There's the Gary Vaynerchuks of the world. There's the um, Grant Cardone's of the world, guys that I love their business philosophy. I believe that Alex Hermosi falls into this category who don't read and consume fiction because they don't have time for entertainment. And that is a massive misunderstanding of what's going on with many fiction writers out there, myself included, is that I'm, I am at a, a, a real level trying to impart life lessons that I myself have experienced and that I think will will improve the world around me. Um, and I'm also trying to have a conversation about things that I'm struggling with that I don't understand. If you write a nonfiction book, the only option you have is to have mastery of teaching it like a classroom environment and then transporting that into paper and ink. That's great. Some things I've done have fallen into that category. But by and large, I want the kind of experience that you can't exactly put into words like a classroom experience, but that goes deep into your soul and changes who you are and changes the things you do and changes the way that you behave. The way that I behave and the person that I am is demonstrably different because of my experience reading novels. Uh, and it has gotten me through some of the deepest pains and hardships of my life. It has increased some of the greatest joys of my life. 
there is a reason why I spend so much time in fiction. So I've gotten just slightly off track, but I think I'm also on track by saying, in order to write this kind of fiction, you have to rise above the 90%. You have to rise above that, that point where you're an expert to being an expert of expert, expert of experts. And I think that the return on your investment will be such that if you want to be Stephen King, then the product itself has to be Stephen King level. There's Dean Koontz. He's great. There's no, it's not luck. It's not, it's not, it's not luck that Stephen King is so much more well-known than Dean Koontz. There are people who don't know either author tremendously well who will say, oh, you know, Dean Koontz and Stephen King are comparable. They're not comparable. They're not. It's not luck that Stephen King is so much more famous. Dean Koontz doesn't know how to write The Green Mile. Dean Koontz doesn't know how to write The Shawshank Redemption. Dean Koontz doesn't know how to write The Body. Dean Koontz can be funny. He can be horrific. He can be entertaining. He can even be morally, philosophically profound at times, but he doesn't know how to sustain it the way that Stephen King does. Um, John Grisham is incredibly well-known. He doesn't know how to do what Dennis Lehane does. Yet John Grisham has had a great deal of success. And you probably know his name better than Dennis Lehane, but you don't understand that Dennis Lehane is behind some of the biggest movies and books out there. Some of the most lasting stories. Shutter Island, Gone Baby Gone. That's Dennis Lehane. Dennis Lehane's stories have profoundly touched lives. Um, Whereas John Grisham entertains. He has a, a background in law and that's pretty neo. It's pretty awesome. But when you read John Grisham, you're not going to be reading to wrestle with matters of life and death. Anyways, people are going to call me snooty for this episode. I just realized right there as I was defending John Grisham, uh, excuse me, defending Dennis Lehane over John Grisham because Dennis Lehane has something to say and John Grisham is just playing for for fun. But it's true. So, um, wow, we've gotten to this point in the podcast and I keep returning to the idea that rising from the 90% to the 91st and the 92nd and so on and so forth takes tons of work. Uh, Go back to your chapters and see, can I cut any words? Can I cut any scenes? Can I revise any words? Can I revise any scenes, sentences, paragraphs, all of the structure details? What am I trying to say here? What does this benefit the whole story? Can it be removed? Is the story clearer and crisper without it? Would somebody who knows nothing about this be able to dive in and really have an experience? Those are all the questions that when you put them into the book will make this product that when you do the hard work of selling it to somebody is going to result in a lasting impact. So this is about the craft. I'm not giving you any craft lessons. I'm not giving you any takeaways in terms of that, but you need to know that the book itself is good enough to get out into the world. And if you know that it can be better, if you know you can do better, don't start marketing it yet. Take some more time to make the draft better. Don't get paralyzed. I'll do another episode pretty soon where it'll probably sound like I contradict myself because I'm not telling you to hold off until you have a perfect story. But maybe I am telling you to hold off until the story is so good that you have no clue how you could make it better. That seems like an okay place to be. It seems like an okay place to just hold off and say, you know what? I'm not going to come forward with this until I know that it's the best that I can make it. And then there's also just, you know, sell a ton of books. If you love that, then sell a ton of books. Um, Ian Fleming wrote James Bond, and uh, if the the legends are to be believed, 
he spent uh, each summer writing a new James Bond book. And then during the year, he would do his other stuff. He would take three months off in the summer, go write a James Bond book, send it to the publisher and not think about it again. I think he was highly motivated by entertainment. I don't think he was tremendously enter- uh, motivated by uh, philosophical moral tellings at all. Yet, weirdly enough, when I read James Bond, I am moved uh, by the philosophical stories. So everything I've said is probably to be taken with a grain of salt. At the core of this, I just want you to know that if you're not getting the results that you want, you're not getting them because you don't deserve them yet. I'm speaking to myself here too. If you're not getting the results you want, you don't deserve them yet. And when you get the results you want, know that you deserve them. Don't worry about being an imposter because if you got the results, you deserved them. If you come out with a, a billion dollar business selling you know, makeup or perfume, thinking about uh, the Kardashians, those kind of folks. You can say that it's just uh, who they are or um, their connections that have made them really big. But then I would ask you why other celebrities who have a far bigger impact in this world uh, and are really well-known didn't create billion-dollar companies. There's there's a reason that a billion-dollar company exists. Somebody has done better at building their brand and using their brand. Uh, Taylor Swift has done an amazing job of building her brand and using her brand. I don't know enough about the super famous people out there. Like George Clooney has his tequila. And I believe that that has been like a a massive success for him. I don't know anything about Brad Pitt, whether he has any brands. That's the name that I was going to and thinking Brad Pitt is world famous as an actor. And I don't know that he has a whole ton of money because I don't know that he's built his brand outside of acting. Anyway, he's done worse at it than some. (laughs) Uh, Focus on building you. Focus on building who you are and make sure that the product you have to deliver is, is top tier, grade A, amazing. All right, let's tie this all together now. If you are experiencing success, it could lead you to not do the things necessary to get to the level that you actually want. So this goes back to a conversation we have had recently, um, defining what success looks like to you and saying, do I really want to put in the time and energy to be the Stephen King? I think in a recent podcast, I I admitted that maybe I couldn't see myself doing what was necessary to be at that level because there were certain bits of uh, leisure and entertainment and you know being with the family that maybe I wasn't willing to sacrifice. Um, and so first saying like, I would be okay if I made a, a, a unfathomably good living, but maybe not a Stephen King level living at, at selling books. Um, with that in mind, what are the kind of actions that I need to take to get there? Um, and one of those things is that I need to master online marketing. I need to master running ads. I need to run ads profitably. But after over a year of trying to run ads, I have never run ads profitably for a sustained period. I've been profitable at different times, but on the whole, I have lost money running ads. I have paid to find readers. And when I don't run ads like right now, I don't get other channels of sales either. So this is this has been a challenge for me is that in the months of December and January, I really, really stepped back running my ads. I was starting to be concerned about the cost. My wife was working. I was feeling really down, really low about what I was doing and did not see a path forward to be successful. And I was like, after 10 months at that point, 11 months at that point of, of running ads, um, I hadn't been successful enough to really break through. And I think I started to struggle with maybe I should just quit because I'm not very good at this. I suck at ads. Maybe my books suck. Maybe uh, what I think is great is not great. Yada, yada, yada. Chimes and noise. 
after a year, I am better than 90% of people running ads, but that doesn't mean I'm good enough to deserve your purchase. Um, and so what I did is that I really started looking at in-person sales events. I have transferable skills selling books. I've been a sales manager for many companies. You know this, I sold insurance. Um, I have sold sunglasses. I've sold advertising um, and like newspapers and all kinds of different stuff. But I've been in sales pretty much my entire life. It's a transferable skill. When I am one-on-one -on -one in person with you, I most likely can sell you something. Um, I might not be able to sell you my book if you're not a reader, but I can sell you something. Uh, and that is almost across the board. If I'm in person with you, I can sell you something. And so I use that skill and I've been going to to, uh, events. And this past weekend, I went to um, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I made $500 selling books in a seven hour day. So that's pretty good. You have you have expenses and all that kind of stuff. But you know, I did well, I, I have new readers, and hopefully those readers are going to plow through the books and love them. In order to actually make a living, I would have to do that every single day day. And there's just not enough Comic-Cons and places to be where I can do that every single day. So you can already see it's great to be in person. It's great to meet people. There is a deeper connection. I've had this conversation on the podcast recently. You can, you can build into somebody at a much deeper level when you see them in person. So yes, do those events. But where my mind was going, where my brain was going is like, really, I turned off the ads and I was thinking if I can just go to a show a few times a month, you know, if I can do 40, let's say events in a year, if I can do 40 events, then I can probably have a meaningful uh, income off of my, my books. But I want you to think if I did $500 of books and I have a three book offer for $35, if you do some quick math, that means that I probably took in somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 new readers, 20 readers in one day. If I don't get 20 readers every single day, I sell less than 5,000 books a year. Just soak that in. The best authors are, are selling millions of books. The authors who are, who are really churning are selling millions of books. You have to have multiple channels open. You have to be selling books through multiple avenues. You have to sell books through Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, at bookstores. You have to sell books through advertising. You have to dial in all those channels if you want to be successful. So being successful in one area is not an excuse to take the gas off another area. And I want to confess to you that I took the gas off an area because I just was absolutely flummoxed. I don't know how to find a consistently profitable strategy for my books through advertising. But I'm committing to you that I'm going to get back to advertising, maybe at a lower level, probably $10 a day is what I can afford to do right now. That's not playing with the big boys, but maybe if I find an ad that churns, maybe if I find an ad that like really kicks into gear, I can start throwing some more money into it and build it. But I want to encourage you to do the same thing I am. Be places, go places, do things, do events, schedule as much as you can, as much as you're comfortable with, as much as you're able to, then say realistically, this amount of effort deserves this much of an outcome. Okay, if I was a place for, for seven hours and I got 20 new readers, that's what I deserved. That was my level of competency. Uh, now, are those readers going to buy the next book in the series? If I did my job well writing it, yes, they are. That's great. That means repeat sales and repeat customers are the very best customers. You did the hard work of getting them one time. Don't like throw them out because you wrote crappy books. All right. There's so much more I could say, but I feel like this is a natural place to wrap it up. We we started out with the the uh, like success robbing us. We finished 
explaining how the success robbed us. And in the middle, we went all kinds of different places, um, including philosophy and being really snooty and sounding probably arrogant, which I don't know. I do have a pretty big ego that I have to wrestle with. And so maybe my ego got the best of me in the middle of this, but I'm giving it to you just as I cut it. Please enjoy. And we'll talk to you again on Wednesday. Thank you for listening to TRBM. The theme music was provided by the ever-talented Christopher Talon. And hey, if you liked what you heard, share this show with other readers because what's the point of telling stories if nobody's listening?